Would you take your Bibles, please, and join me in Judges chapter 11. While you are turning there, I want to say what a blessing it is to be a part of this church where there's a special emphasis placed upon our God and our country. I love our God, and I love this country. And I get stirred up over both. And we're so blessed to be in this God-formed nation. We get to freely attend church today. Nobody was checking IDs at the door. Nobody's watching, overseeing, I should say. What a blessing. And for those of you who are from South Dakota, I love living in the freest state in the Union. No offense to our show me state brethren here. Uh, Those of you from out of state, listen, we got the best governor in the country. That's just all there is to it. If we would see a return to states' rights with limited federal government, then every state could enjoy what we've been blessed to enjoy here. And I'm praying that God would raise up a generation that would stand for our God-given liberties. Judges chapter 11, I'm not going to get in depth in this chapter. I simply want to draw out a thought which will be the emphasis for today. We're going to jump through this real quick in this chapter, so it's going to be a little kind of wacky here at first. But look at verse 4, please. And it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And I just need to read this verse to get the context of what follows. The children of Ammon have come to make war with the children of Israel. Long story short, in verses 5 through 11, Israel turns to Jephthah for help. Look at verses 12 through 15. And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon even unto Jabbok and unto Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon and said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab nor the land of the children of Ammon. And then in verses 16 through 22 we have the history of the children of Israel's travels from the Red Sea to the Jordan River, it's briefly stated to show how Israel was not wrong in what transpired in the past. And in verse 23, the scene then returns to Israel's present circumstances with the children of Ammon. And I want you to look at verses 23 through 27. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before His people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it? Wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. You see, there's this battle of two gods beginning to show up here. You catching that? You take the land that Chemosh will give you, we'll take the land that God will give us. Wilt thou not possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? So, 
Whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. And now art thou anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Aroer and her towns, and in all the cities that be along by the coast of Arnon, three hundred years? Why therefore did ye not recover them within that time? Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. There's a lot of history here that I'm not going to bring out that would establish why Israel was not in the wrong Time just won't permit that today. For now, I just want you to see that Ammon has come against Israel to war. And though Jephthah was a mighty man of valor, he doesn't go straight to war, but he tries a diplomatic process. He tries a peaceful resolution. Jephthah sends messengers to the king of Ammon, and the king of Ammon answers the messengers, who in turn take his message back to Jephthah. And then Jephthah in turn sends messengers again, to the children of Ammon, trying to establish why they were innocent, that there didn't need to be any bloodshed, but all of this diplomacy was getting them nowhere. Therefore, in verse 27, Jephthah lays out Israel's last appeal. Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord... The judge be the judge this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. When all other means of averting war had been exhausted, with no other higher earthly authority to appeal to in their case, Jephthah, he now turns to the Lord. And he says, The Lord be the judge. We're not getting anywhere diplomatically. So we're just gonna we're gonna plead our cause to God and He can decide the outcome of these two nations. Now let's fast forward some twenty eight hundred years from our text to the seventeenth century. Europe has emerged from the Dark Ages, the Reformation had taken place, the Renaissance period was underway. During that time, there was this age of enlightenment, they call it. Some call it the age of reason. And this period is marked as a great scientific, intellectual, and philosophical movement. Some things were very beneficial. Some things were very harmful that came out of that time. But from this movement came forth many different theories on how government should be conducted. One of the most influential Philosophers in that day was a man by the name of John Locke. He lived in England, born in 1632, died in 1704. And his writings on government really impacted a lot of people. Now, he's a complicated man to study. I I tried to understand more about him, but he's got so many things. I cannot say that I would recommend you read all of his writings, but I can tell you that he did have some good thoughts. And he had some very controversial thoughts as well. He wrote extensively. Although it would seem he really became more widely read after his death. 
He wrote a work entitled Two Treaties of Government. First published anonymously in 1689. It was republished in 1764. It collated the first three editions with some corrections that needed to be made, some errors that were in there. In his two treaties of government, he cites the account I just gave of Jephthah and Ammon. And in writing about when there is no longer a higher earthly power to appeal to, he stated this. Had there been any such court, any superior jurisdiction on earth to determine the right between Jephthah and the Ammonites, they had never come to a state of war. But we see he was forced to appeal to heaven. Further along in his two treaties of government, he goes on to write, And where the body of the people or any single man is deprived of their right or is under the exercise of a power without right and have no appeal on earth, then they have a liberty to appeal to heaven. Locke believed that people had certain rights which should never be infringed upon by any government. And that rebellion is justified if it means defending those God-given rights. And as he wrote, rights such as life, health, liberty, or possessions. Does that sound familiar? Language which influenced the phrase in our Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so to sum up his thoughts in one sentence, he wrote this, where there is no judge on earth, the appeal lies to God in heaven. Everybody following the thought so far? All of our founding fathers were very well read. We're very well TV'd. They were very well read. And John Locke on this subject of government was one of the philosophers who greatly impacted our founding fathers. Now, it was evident that war was beginning to brew between Great Britain and the American colonies long before July 4th, 1776. Before any official battles took place between the British Army and the Continental Army, there were many events which caused the colonies to begin to push back against the crown. Most will go back to what is called the Royal Proclamation of 1763. Then there was the Sugar Act of 1764, the Stamp Act in 1765, the Townsend Acts of 1767, which eventually resulted in the Boston Massacre of 1770 the Pine Tree Riot of 1772, the Tea Act of 1773, which we know culminated in the Boston Tea Party later that year in December of 73. During all of these, the colonies would use their legal channels to appeal to a power upon this earth, powers that were back in England, but they were met with even more tyranny time and time again. During all of this continued overreach of government, there was this swelling tide of patriots that were beginning to rise in America who were beginning to sense that because they were seeing no representation, their only option left was to appeal to God in heaven. One such patriot was Patrick Henry. He stated at the Second Virginia Convention on March the 23rd, 1775, in what is his famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, he said this, Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have 
remonstrated, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored His interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances have been uh, have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded. And we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. Speaking of the King of England. In vain, after these things, may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve and violate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged, in which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. You catch what Patrick Henry said? We have nothing left we can do but to appeal to God. In less than a month after Patrick Henry's rousing speech, war had started on April the 19th, 1775 with a shot heard round the world at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. The National Portrait Gallery of Distinguished Americans, Volume 4, which was published in 1839, mentions Jonathan Trumbull, the governor of Connecticut. He was the only governor to take up the Patriots' cause, and he's the only one to serve under the crown and also under America. He noted how the American Revolution only began after repeated petitions to the king and parliament were rejected and ignored. In writing to a foreign leader, he stated, On the 19th day of April, 1775, the scene of blood was opened by the British troops by the unprovoked slaughter of the provincial troops at Lexington and Concord. The adjacent colonies took up arms in their own defense, and the Congress again met. Listen, Congress again petitioned to the throne for peace and settlement. And again, their petitions were contemptuously uh, disregarded. When every glimpse of hope failed, not only of justice but of safety, we were compelled by the last necessity to appeal to heaven and rest the defense of our liberties and privileges upon the favor and protection of divine providence. A week later at the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, Joseph Warren stated on April the 26th, 1775, to the persecution and tyranny of His cruel ministry, we will not tamely submit, appealing to heaven for the justice of our cause. We determine to die or to be free. These men had some salt, amen? On July 5th, 1775, the Second Continental Congress approved the Olive Branch Petition. This was a last-ditch effort by the colonies to avert war with Great Britain. And if you'll read the Olive Branch Petition, you'll find it is glowing with praise to the King of England. They tried. But on the next day, July 6th, 1775, in preparation for a rejection of the Olive Branch petition, the Second Continental Congress also adopted a resolution entitled The Declaration of the Causes and Necessities of Taking Up Arms, and it ends with this paragraph. 
with an humble confidence in the mercies of the supreme and impartial judge and ruler of the universe, we must devoutly implore His divine goodness to protect us happily through this great conflict, to dispose our adversaries to reconciliation on reasonable terms, and thereby to relieve the empire from the calamities of civil war. However, because King George refused to receive the petition from the colonies, on August the 23rd, 1775, he issued the proclamation of rebellion. This had already been drafted before the colonial secretary, Lord Dartmouth, would have received the Olive Branch petition. So they already had their mind made up in England. And the proclamation of of rebellion declared the American colonies were in a state of open and avowed rebellion. So this effectively was the answer to what would have been the Olive Branch petition had it actually been read. Now, I have attempted succinctly, which is hard to do, you're talking a lot of history here, to jam this in as quick as I can to establish that just as Jephthah tried everything he could to avert war with Ammon, so the American colonies did everything they could in their power politically to avert war with Great Britain. But having exhausted all earthly political means, there was no other course for the colonies to take except to appeal to the Lord the Judge in heaven. And in those days, it was understood that a military needed a navy. That was how superpower was developed. They needed a navy to be competitive. So in October 1775, under the authority of General George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army, six ships were commissioned. Now, of course, humanly speaking, these six ships would have been no match whatsoever for the British Empire. All the ships in the colony couldn't count up to all that Britain had. They had 270 ships. It was the greatest naval force in the world at the time. And since these ships were commissioned before America officially was a nation, there was no American flag. But they needed to distinguish themselves on these ships by flying something. So General George Washington, at the prompting of Colonel Reed, had a white flag featuring a green pine tree in the center flown on these ships. And on the flag was the motto, an appeal to heaven. Now, there are several variations of this flag. You'll see the pine tree drawn a little bit different here and there. But they all represent the same thing. George Washington knew and believed in the Almighty God. That, That He was the one who could bring aid God was the one who could bring aid to the struggling nation as they were striving for independence. And his choice of the flag emblazed with an appeal to heaven. It gave inspiration and hope to those who, from an outside perspective, understood that America had very little chance of victory. Our founding fathers understood that America's last option against Britain's tyrannical rule was an appeal to heaven. You see, we were no match for Great Britain, militarily speaking. And it would only be if God would approve. Get this. Only if God approved of securing our liberties could we win a war against such a mighty empire. And on November 29th, 1775, while sailing under the flag 
uh, under that flag and appeal to heaven, an American ship, the Lee, one of the ones commissioned by General Washington, it captured the Nancy, which turned out to be one of the most valuable captures in the war. It contained 2,000 muskets, 8,000 fuses, 31 tons of musket balls, 3,000 cannonballs for 12-pound cannons, and one 13-inch cannon, 100,000 flints, and other types of munitions and supplies. And this was huge for the Continental Army early on because we didn't have a whole lot. This was a big deal. Now, this flag, it is said to be full of symbolism. Now, you can take this for what it's worth. There's a lot of opinions out there, but here's some interesting things that I came across. I mentioned earlier something called the Pine Tree Riot of 1772. Many of you probably have never heard of that. I didn't until I began to study for this message. Are you all okay with a history lesson, by the way? <laughs> Those of you that hate history are like, good night. <laughs> when the colonists arrived, the northeastern forests were untouched. And because of that, many of the eastern white pines... They had grown to heights of over 200 feet. Some reported them over 250. And at the base, they were several feet in diameter, some as big as six feet in diameter. Because of their size, they were sought after by the British Empire because they were perfect for making masts on ships. They even became known as mast pines. So Britain passed the Broad Arrow Act. Trees that Britain wanted for shipbuilding, they were marked with a broad arrow carved in the tree, and the colonists were prohibited from cutting these trees down, even if that tree was located on their own personal property. And this was a big deal because these trees were huge in helping to build the colonies and also to build ships for themselves. And so by, by taking these trees, it was a big deal, and it cost a lot of money to the colonies. And so it eventually led to the Pine Tree Riot of 1772. And it is said that the pine tree on the appeal to heaven flag was a reminder to the colonists of Britain's overreach of government. And the white pine became an emblem of independence. And this, this pine tree made its appearance on several revolutionary flags. You can search that out for yourself. Of extreme interest to me, however, is the white pine tree's symbolism may even date back to the Iroquois Confederacy. There was a man called Deganawida. He was also known as the Great Peacemaker. He brought a confederacy out of five warring tribes, which in time would become a total of six tribes. When Deganawida made a league among the five tribes, they met at the base of a white pine. They dug a hole in the ground, and they buried their weapons of war, signifying that they would no longer war against each other, but they, they would choose to live in peace. And from that ceremony, we get the phrase, let's bury the hatchet. He then took one arrow and he snapped it in half. And he was showing how one tribe alone couldn't stand on its own with a whole lot of strength. But then he took a bundle of five arrows representing the five tribes. And he showed how five tribes united together could not be broken very easily, if at all. Legend says that after they buried their weapons, a bald eagle, which is considered sacred in, in many native cultures, flew in, landed on top of the tree, symbolizing a guardianship over the tree, and the tree became known as the Great Tree of Peace. Well, in June of 1782, the Continental Congress adopted the Great Seal of the United States, 
which was actually designed in 1776, and it depicts a bald eagle grasping 13 arrows. 13-leaved olive branch in its talons, referring to the 13 original states. And stated in Latin are the words, out of many, one. So like the Iroquois Confederacy, where they were independent tribes operating towards a common cause, so the 13 American colonies were independent states who had come together for a common cause. And in order for unity and strength in war against Great Britain, the colonies would have to bury any of their differences, unifying together to be stronger as 13 confederated states. And so the pine tree was also a reminder to come together for a greater cause. And the pine tree symbol became a symbol of liberty. And can I just preach here real quick and tell you, if you've got something against somebody, you need to bury that hatchet. You got somebody against somebody in church, we are weaker if we're not unified. You need to get that buried. Amen. Not talking about compromise. As stated on wallbuilders.com, thus when the early militiamen and naval officers flew the pine tree flag with its motto and appeal to heaven, it was not some random act with little significance or meaning. Instead, they sought to march into battle with a recognition of God's providence and their reliance on the King of Kings to right the wrongs which they had suffered. Now on July the 4th, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was adopted by the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 245 years ago, we find ties back in the Declaration of Independence to the account of the children of Israel and the children of Ammon in Judges 11 because they had no other option but to appeal to heaven. In the Declaration of Independence, our founders cited a long train of abuses. You find these little phrases I'm saying right here in the Declaration of Independence. They cited a long train of, abu- of, of abuses which they patiently suffered through. And in every stage of those oppressions, they petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. However, their repeated petitions were only answered by repeated injury. They appealed to justices, but their appeals fell on deaf ears. Now because Great Britain was the superpower in the world at the time, there was therefore no other earthly power on earth to which you could appeal higher. They had already appealed to King George. So the patriots appealed to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of their intentions. That's the language you'll find in the Declaration of Independence. So the patriots appealed to the supreme judge with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. They pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And I cannot read that without getting stirred. We pledge our lives. We determine that we will live free or die. With nowhere else to turn on earth for redress. When all other diplomatic means have been exhausted and believing that their cause was just, they cast themselves upon the court system of the judge of heaven 
and of earth to allow God Almighty to decide the outcome of the war for independence. Just as Jephthah said, the Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. So 245 years ago, our 13 American colonies petitioned to God and essentially said, the Lord, be the judge this day between the children of America and the children of Great Britain. And they marched into war under the banner of an appeal to heaven. And we know what God's verdict was as the judge of heaven and earth. God was for liberty and justice for all. So here we are, 245 years later. We've declared our independence from tyrants in order to create a place where one can enjoy certain unalienable rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we are now watching as our God-given rights are being stripped away. On July the 4th, 2014, the Bradley Courthouse in Arkansas hoisted an appeal to heaven flag. The Freedom From Religion Foundation sent a letter to Judge Keith Neely asking for the flag to be removed or face being sued. They claimed it was unconstitutional and a year later, in July of 2015, that flag was taken down. No wonder our nation is in a mess today. You cannot maintain a God-given nation without the God who gave it. And so the question is beginning to brew in our nation in our day. When do we take up arms and fight back? We, like Jephthah, must exhaust all earthly means. Just like our founding fathers, we fight back only after other means of redress have been exhausted. When we can no longer appeal to any higher authority on this earth, then we boldly appeal to heaven. When the lower court system failed the Apostle Paul, he appealed unto Caesar, the highest in the world at the time. But when that process ran its course, Paul would ultimately have to throw himself upon the mercy and grace of God Almighty. Now don't misunderstand me. Appealing to heaven is clearly something we should have been doing all the time. In a spiritual sense. And we are watching our liberties erode because we have stopped appealing to heaven. We decided to kick God out of our government and public institutions. What do we expect? We are the last hope for this nation the church of blood-bought saints, church of the redeemed. You understand the American Revolution was sparked because there were some fiery preachers in the pulpit. In fact, you understand one of the phrases in the early American colonies was resistance to government is obedience to God, or resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. You know where they got that from? Jonathan Mayhew preached in 1750, and that became a slogan. Listen, we've got to get with the program. If we just sit back and do nothing... What's going to happen to our, all of our liberties? Look, for those of you that are old enough, doesn't it break your heart that your children and grandchildren won't experience the liberties you did when you were a kid? Make no mistake, our, our hope as a nation is in God. And it's time that we, we renew our appeal to heaven and cry out to God. And listen, I'm all for the don't tread on me flag. But before we get too independent... 
and trust only in ourselves and don't you tread on me. Let's not forget that it was God who made and preserved us a nation. Not us. We recognize that without God, we would have never become the United States of America. And we recognize that if we're to continue as a free nation where we can enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then we must see a nationwide return to God who has made us a nation. And I would tell you today, listen, children of God, don't lose heart. Oh, we're in the last days. There's nothing we can do about it. No, no, no. Listen, God is still on the throne. He's still interested in righteousness. Sin is a reproach to any people. But righteousness exalteth a nation. That promise doesn't change just because we're in the last days. And we must appeal to God. And I don't want you to lose heart this morning. Half of this nation and maybe more still believes in liberty for all. Over the majority of this nation will still stand when the star-spangled banner is being played. I know the attention goes to all of those kneeling. Did you see the Olympian that turned her back the other day? That says they're getting all the attention, but I'll remind you that while one-third may have turned their back that day, there was still 66% that didn't. Don't lose hope. The media is blasting all the negative coverage, but listen, there's a lot of good still in this nation. I'm just trying to get you to believe that God is still interested in revival in this country. There are still people that with a grateful heart will put their hand over their heart and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. There are literally millions that are against abortion. The majority has always been against same-sex marriage. That's a fact. Almost every state was approving banning that. It was just judges. I've said for years, we, we have ceased to be a republic. We are an oligarchy. The judges are ruling the land. Isn't that what you just read about what Thomas Jefferson warned about? You let the judiciary get out of control. Lord, I feel like being a politician all of a sudden. All right, focus. Only 5.6% of our nation identifies as LGBTQ. We have many issues in this nation, there's no doubt. Sin is being legislated. God is not pleased with us today, but I want to remind you that there is still a remnant in this country that has not bowed the knee, the knee to Baal. All across our land today, churches are gathering together just like this to offer a sacrifice of praise to God and thank Him for the freedoms that we still enjoy in this nation. There's no other place you can go that you can have what we have here. And just as there was a swelling tide of patriots back there in the 1700s, I'm seeing it. I'm watching it. I'm, it's making me just get excited. There is a swelling tide of patriots today. It's happening. It's out there. Patriotism is beginning to build once again. But the difference is going to be whether or not we appeal to heaven. I'll leave you with this last verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave.
May we seek the Lord, the judge. Let's make an appeal to heaven. To God. To renew us once again and bring true revival to our shores. And should the day come, my friends, when we have no other option, let's remember the sacrifices of our forefathers. Who could say, give me liberty or give me death. God still wants liberty for all. God's judgment is on the side of those that stand for His God-given rights. Let's pray.